The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Scripture passage tonight is from the book of Exodus, chapter 12. We will be looking at chapter 12, verses 1 through 32. 1 through 32. I invite you to follow along in your Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it its head and its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and and beast on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. 
For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, And there was a great great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers, the flower fades, but our word of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we do give you great praise and thanks for your word, for your eternal, unchangeable word, your life-giving word. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would work in and through the reading and the preaching of the word tonight, that all, that all those who hear your word would give praise to your great and holy name, and worship our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We've had the privilege of listening through or binge listening to your sermon series on Exodus for the past two weeks. And I've really appreciated how your pastors here have have handled this book, this important book of the Old Testament. And in particular, I really appreciate the continued emphasis on how The book of Exodus gives us a model, or at least it makes clear a model for God's redemption. Exodus, I believe, absolutely does do that. And in fact, it may be hard to overstate the importance of the Exodus account in the lives of Old Testament Israel. It, it always amazes me how often the Old Testament mentions 
God's deliverance of his people out of the land of Egypt. It's all, it's all over the Old Testament. And if you asked an Old Testament believer, how do you know that your God is a God who saves, I would be willing to bet my next paycheck that his answer would have been something along the lines of, because he is the Lord our God who brought us out of the land of Egypt. This is the event of redemption that put on display in the ancient world the glory of God, that put on display his power and his sovereignty. This is God's glory on display for before the eyes of the Egyptians, before the eyes of the Israelites, and before the eyes of the entire world. One of my seminary professors at Covenant Seminary said that the Exodus account is is to an Old Testament Israelite what Resurrection Sunday is to a New Covenant believer. This is the crowning example, the central event of God's redemptive work in the Old Testament. And our passage tonight, the tenth plague and the Passover, is basically the event that seals the deal. This is the event that leads to the Israelites leaving the land of Egypt. And yet, as we know, while the Exodus event is this great and wonderful work of redemption, of God's salvation, it's only a foreshadow. It's only a model. It's only a taste of the redemption that would come. It points towards the ultimate work of redemption, of God's salvation, that would come in the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But with that being said, our passage tonight does give us three critical elements of God's redemption. Three attributes of what God's salvation is like. These three elements of salvation will help us understand God's work of redemption. Then they will help us understand the work of our Lord and Savior. And those three elements of salvation that are on display for us tonight in Exodus 12 are first, that God's salvation is accomplished through a substitute. Secondly, in this passage tonight, we're going to see that God's salvation is not merely an act of saving us from the slavery of sin and death, but it's also a saving us for something talk about that. And thirdly, that God's salvation is always tied to and flows out of God's acts of judgment. Well, let's look at the first element of salvation displayed for us tonight in this passage, that God's salvation is accomplished through the means of a substitute. We see this in verses 1 through 13, the giving of the Passover feast. Some of you have known me for quite some time. And uh, you may remember that one of my first jobs out of high school was to work at Provident Bookstore in Lancaster County uh, over at the Lancaster Shopping Center. I worked there for seven years from the time I was 18 until I was 25. That's where I met my wife. Uh, It was a good job. But during that time, it exposed me to many of the movements, many of the trends that uh, kind of come and go in Christianity, particularly evangelicalism. I really got a, a good exposure 
to where many evangelicals are at and, and uh, what types of things uh, Christians tend to cling to. One of the trends that uh, took hold within Christianity, particularly maybe more uh, among what you might call the more postmodern or emergent strand of Christianity at the time, was, was called the nonviolent atonement. This was a theory on, on Christ's death that, in its basic form, denied that when Jesus was on the cross, he was an object of God's just and holy wrath. It was a denial that Christ had to pay a penalty for the sins of his people. In fact, this theory denies outright, as one proponent of this theology put it, and this is a quote, moral order demands that sin be punished at all. So it denied that sin merited a punishment. This theory denies that God would have any wrath towards sinners and claims, again, this is another quote, that the idea that sin must be punished is dependent upon Western notions of the moral order. I don't know if you caught that or not. The claim of the nonviolent atonement theorists is that the idea of sin needing to be punished is dependent upon Western notions of the moral order. The theory goes on to say that the idea that sinners justly deserve the wrath of God for their sins is completely foreign to both ancient cultures and to the Bible. Again, that is another quote. But really what was at the heart of the nonviolent atonement view was a denial of the idea of substitution. That is to, to say it was a denial that Jesus Christ, as the spotless Lamb of God, stood as a substitute for his people, taking onto himself the punishment and condemnation for sin, paying the price for sins that we committed, taking upon himself the wrath of God for sin, the wrath that we deserve. It is a denial that Christ became the sin-bearer. In fact, it's a pretty harsh denial of those things. More than once as I was exposed to this theory and reading about it, did I hear or read proponents of the nonviolent atonement refer to substitutionary atonement as cosmic child abuse. They would say, our loving Heavenly Father would never unleash his holy wrath against his own son. The more I read and studied throughout that time, the more I realized as Many of you know, I'm sure, that the idea of substitution is essential to understanding God's redemptive work. And I'm convinced that this claim, that the idea of a substitutionary, a penal substitutionary atonement, is somehow an invention of modern Western thought. And I think that's absolutely an absurd claim in light of the Passover account. I want you to notice something about the 10th plague here. Look at verse 12. Yahweh is speaking, the Lord, and he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And what do we notice about this plague that might be different from the other plagues? I want you to see 
That God does not say, I will strike all the firstborn of the household of Egypt. He says, I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Israel is not being exempt from this plague like they were from the other plagues. Do you see that? If, if a household of Israel did not follow the Lord's instructions concerning killing a spotless lamb and spreading the blood over its door, they too would wake up to find their firstborn killed. Why is that? Why would the household of Israel not be exempt from this plague? The simple answer is because the wages of sin is death. And the Israelites were sinners just as much as the Egyptians. Even in their suffering, even in their bondage to slavery, they were sinners. And I don't believe that Exodus... And certainly the Old Testament (laughs) tries to hide this reality. We went back to Exodus 5, 21. We saw how the people reacted to Moses. It was a sinful reaction. They were rejecting a prophet of God. We know uh, that they were guilty of idolatry. This isn't seen in the book of Exodus, but in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, there's a covenant renewal ceremony. And Joshua says in verse 14 of Chapter 24, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. But even more important than these two sins of rejecting God's prophets and, rege- and, and, and idolatry, the reality is the Israelites, just like all of us here tonight, are by nature sinners and therefore worthy of the punishment that sin demands. We are worthy of death, both physically and spiritually. The wages of sin, the punishment for sin is death, and that wage must be paid. That is not a Western idea. That is not foreign to Scripture. This is seen from the very beginning of the Bible. If you sin against God, you shall die. The day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Sin carries with it a punishment. It always has. And the Israelites deserved to be visited by the angel of death. It's what holy justice demands. You know, really, to reject the idea that sin demands punishment, to reject the idea that the holy God would have holy wrath towards that which is unholy, is to deny that he is a just God. Many people love the idea, and it's true. They love the idea that our God executes perfect judgment until they realize that perfect justice demands that their own sin requires satisfaction and that the wages of their sin must be paid and that perfect justice means that we all stand condemned. But to deny that the Lord would have wrath towards sin is to deny that he is a just God.
And to deny that he is a just God is to deny that he is a holy God. And to deny that he is a holy God is to deny that he is God. Sin absolutely demands a punishment because it's an offense to the very essence of God himself. It's an offense to his glorious holiness. It is a capital offense. And those who sin, and those who sin, rather, which is all of us, are worthy of nothing except death and condemnation. But God, which are two of the most glorious words in all of Scripture, but God always provides what he requires in salvation. And in the Passover, God indeed provides a way for his people to be saved. And that way of salvation is through a substitute. Each family was to choose a lamb, a year old, a physically perfect lamb, because only a perfect sacrifice was acceptable to God. And once the lamb was chosen, he was to be slaughtered and cooked, cooked with bitter herbs to remind the people of their bitter suffering, to be cooked with unleavened bread because the people would be leaving Egypt in haste. There was no time to let the bread rise. There was to be no leftovers. The most important part of all of this is that a lamb, a spotless lamb, was to be killed and its blood spread over the doorsteps of the households of Israel so that when the angel of death visited that house, there was a sign saying, Yahweh has provided a lamb for us. The lamb has died instead of our firstborn. The blood was a sign. It was a seal that these were God's people, and God had provided a substitute. God had provided a spotless lamb. God had provided a covering of blood so that the Lord could justly pass over their house. I think we plainly see from the Passover that salvation comes through the means of a substitute. The second element of salvation that we see from this passage tonight is that God's people are not only saved from slavery, from bondage, from death, but they are also saved to something. And that something here in our passage tonight is holiness. Now there are other things that God's people are saved to. Primarily, I would say we are saved to a restored fellowship and communion with our God. And we see that in Exodus. We've seen it many times so far. Why is it that Moses and Aaron asked Pharaoh to let them go so that they can go and worship their God? And where is it that God will eventually take the Israelites? He will eventually take them to the promised land, a land which symbolizes a place where God would make his dwelling place among his people once again. But specifically... In tonight's passage, we see that we are not only saved from sin and its penalty, we are saved to become holy. Verses 14 through 28 describe this feast of unleavened bread, a feast that is bookended by uh, gathered worship 
a feast that is intended to remind God's people of God's redemptive work. And this passage, this section of Exodus 12, by the way, is just a a wonderful reminder of the importance of a gospel-shaped liturgy. It's not the main point of this passage, but I I just saw it so clearly that I felt you should point this out. You know, we, we see that God is not only doing this work of deliverance, but he's also giving his people ordinances and feasts. He's giving them elements of worship, a liturgical calendar to which they are to structure their lives. And the reason for that is so that they would never forget the mighty works of their Redeemer God. And brothers and sisters, that's why the church has, since its earliest days, been intentional about having a gospel-shaped worship service, a gospel-shaped liturgy. If you study the history of Christian liturgy, we see that developing very early on, a, a liturgy, an order of worship that declares the holiness of God, that, that confesses our sin in light of God's holiness, that declares that Jesus Christ has reconciled us and has brought us into fellowship with the holy God, and into fellowship with one another, and and a, a liturgy that reminds us that it's Christ who sends us out into the world to be his royal priesthood, to to display his glory to the world around us. That's that's not a reformed or a Presbyterian invention. You see it in the church developing early on, and it's based on biblical principles, many of which are coming from the Old Testament. How the lives of God's people were structured by God himself in such a way as to remind them of who he is and what he has done for them. We see that tonight. We see God giving his people an everlasting ordinance to remind them of his redemptive work. We need that reminder. We need that reminder because we are sinfully forgetful. One church historian described the Christian life as a blend of amnesia and deja vu. And as we meet for worship, and as we go through the gospel in our order of worship every week, he said it's like the people of God are saying, Aha, I know, I've forgotten this before. This deliverance that God is about to do here in Exodus This is such an important event in the lives of God's people that this ordinance of the Passover feast and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the very beginning of their annual calendar. It's the start of their liturgical year. Their whole year as the people of God is kicked off by this ordinance. You know, we in the Presbyterian Church don't necessarily follow an annual liturgical calendar But this makes sense to us. Because why is it that we begin our week, or rather we should begin our week, by gathering together on the Lord's Day? Because, as the children's catechism says, the first day of the week, the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, is on that day, The Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. 
The Lord's Day is a day to remember the greatest redemptive work of God. We have the privilege of beginning every week by coming together and celebrating this feast as the people of God. And this Lord's Day frames our entire week. And so it makes sense that the Israelites, as the Old Testament covenant community of God, would frame their entire liturgical year around God's great work of redemption in the Exodus. I might also add that verses 26 and 27 make a pretty compelling case as to why our children should be part of the gathered worship service every Lord's Day, but that's a uh, sermon for another time. But how does this feast of unleavened bread show us that God is saving us to be holy? Because that's really the main point of this passage. Well, it's worth noting that no less than four times in this section of Exodus chapter 12, the Israelites are instructed not to eat anything with leaven in it, or they'd be cut off from the covenant community. Why is that? Well, part of it, again, is a reminder that it is the reminder that it would be to them that they were to leave Egypt in haste. But there's also some symbolism with yeast. Primarily, the yeast here is representing sin and its corruptive power. You see, unleavened bread represented holiness. It was pure wheat. It was not touched by yeast. And yeast here in this ordinance, again, is representing sin, and a little bit of sin can ruin the entire loaf. I think this is what the Apostle Paul is speaking about in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8, when he says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul clearly associates yeast with sin here, and I believe the Israelites understood this as well. Israel was, as they were reminded in this feast, to keep themselves pure from sin. Paul has a wonderful statement in that first Corinthians passage. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. In other words, you have a responsibility to be holy because you already are, in the sight of God, holy. Live out that reality of who you are as the people of God. This is a call for God's people. For the Israelites, this feast was a reminder and a call that God worked their redemption God provided a substitute for them. God saved him. In his sight, they were his firstborn son. They were holy. But now, they are being called to live out the reality of who they are as God's children. They were not only being saved from slavery and bondage and oppression, but they were being saved to holiness. To live holy lives. To be a holy nation. I love how Philip Ryken phrases this in his commentary on Exodus. He says that God not only wanted to take his people out of Egypt, he wanted to take Egypt out of his people. 
And this, again, this is so important for the people of God to understand. We are new creations if we belong to Christ. We have our hearts of stone taken away, and we've been given hearts of flesh. We are the new man. And we, too, have a call to pursue holiness. And, and we say praise be to God because we are able to pursue holiness in our lives because we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. He is the one who is sanctifying us. He is the one who is conforming us to the image of God. He is the one who is enabling us to put to death or to mortify indwelling sin and pursue holiness in our lives. We are saved and we are set free to pursue holiness in our lives. And the Spirit of God himself is our helper in living out this call so that we too can live out the call and the reality that we are a holy nation. So what have we seen about God's redemption so far? We've seen that it's accomplished through the means of a substitute. We see that it's not only being saved from something, it's also being saved to holiness and to communion and fellowship with God. And thirdly, in verses 29 through 32, we see the salvation, that redemption comes with and out of judgment. The tenth plague, the final blow against the false gods of Egypt, against Pharaoh himself who believed that he was the very son of Ra, is a gloriously terrifying display of God's perfect judgment. And it's through this act of judgment that God delivers his people. This is not a new idea, by the way. This is not the first time that we see judgment and salvation coming together. We've seen this in the scriptures already. At at Proclamation, we've been preaching our way through the book of Genesis for quite some time now. It's a pretty long book. And uh, we see Adam and Eve... They were given this wonderful promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. But it should not be lost as to when that promise was given. That promise was given as God was pronouncing his curse and his judgment on the serpent. Noah, we know, was saved through the judgment waters of the flood. Lot was saved through the judgment fires that rained down on Sodom. Now Moses and the Israelites will be saved through the judgment of the tenth plague. And this is not the last time in the Holy Scriptures that the theme of judgment and salvation would be seen tied together. In fact, we only need to go a little forward in the book of Exodus to see that the Israelites once again are saved, this time through the judgment waters of the Red Sea, as God's judgment is once again carried out upon the Egyptians. And it it carries through the entire way through the Old Testament. You can trace it, you can see it, until we come to Jesus Christ himself. The great act of deliverance, when Christ... The sinless, spotless Lamb of God was crucified and he was subjected both to unjust human judgment 
when he was punished for crimes he never committed, but also to the divine, perfect, holy judgment as he became the sin bearer for his people on the cross, taking on the judgment for the sins of his people so that we may be saved from that judgment. There's that theme of substitution again. Salvation and judgment continue to be married together until the last day when Christ will return to what? You say it in the Apostles' Creed every week, to judge the living and the dead. Salvation always comes with and through judgment. And the question for all of us tonight is, are we ready for that? Are we ready for that judgment? Because the reality is sin does deserve and require a punishment. It requires a payment. There is a wage for sin, for rebellion against the holy God. And even one small offense against his holiness is worth an eternity of death and damnation. And what will we say on that last day when Jesus Christ, the judge of all the earth, brings us all before his perfectly just throne? What will you say? And what will you trust? I urge you, friends, you need to have an answer to that question before the day comes. We must decide now. Are we going to live our lives like Pharaoh? Are we going to harden our hearts as God gives us call after call after call to come to him in repentance and faith? Or are we going to say, who is the Lord? I've never heard of him. Will we prop ourselves up as our own sovereigns, as our own gods? Hopefully you realize that if we do that, we will not be able to stand on the last day. If that is our attitude, we bring condemnation upon ourselves. Will we be like the household of Israel, who heard the gracious and merciful word of the Lord, who trusted in his promise, acted out of faith, And trusted in the lamb that God provided. You know, they saw the faithfulness of the Lord as they were mercifully spared judgment and graciously given salvation through the blood of the lamb. And I think the call here is quite simple. The call is to be like the Israelites. At least be like the Israelites in the beginning part of Exodus 12. The call is to put our hope and trust in the land that God has provided. Because you and I, we have a better lamb. Those lambs in the Passover, all the sacrifices, really, of the Old Testament, none of them could really pay the penalty for sin. None of them could make satisfaction. They were all pointing towards a better lamb. They were all pointing towards the lamb of God. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Because Christ Jesus, the pure and spotless Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, 
is the Passover lamb who was sacrificed. And not only is he the lamb who was slain, he is the lamb who now lives. And it's his blood that is spread upon the cross beams of Calvary. It's his blood that is sprinkled upon us in the waters of baptism. It's his blood that we are made participants of every time we come to the Lord's Supper. It's his blood that's received by faith. It's his blood that covers us. It's his blood that is a sign and seal to the perfectly holy and just God that says a lamb has died in our place. It's his blood that has accomplished our salvation, that seals us, that covers us, that makes us holy. And it's his blood that will bring us ultimately into the promised land of the new creation where God, our eternally faithful God, will make his dwelling place among us forever. Where we will sit and feast with Christ at a feast even greater than the Passover remembering an even greater act of deliverance than the Exodus event, when we will sit with our glorious Savior, our Bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you provide what you require in salvation. And that you have provided for us a perfect lamb, Jesus Christ, your own son, the spotless lamb of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We pray, Father, that all who hear these words tonight are putting their hope and trust in this lamb that you have provided. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.